chapter 6, and we'll, uh, we'll read verses 1 to 15, but we're going to start in tonight on verses 9 to, 15, uh, 9 to 13, which is the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer, so a very important uh, passage. Also, I think this passage was when we were in the Gospel of Luke. Isn't this the passage the stones came to the church on, right, Denny? That's it. Yes, so he came for the Lord's Prayer, and he never left. He's been there since. So anyway, uh, so it's near and dear to our hearts for that reason as well. So let's uh, read verses 1 to 15 of Matthew 6, then we'll pray and begin our Bible study. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that Lord, you are the one who calls us to pray, and Lord, you are the one who teaches us what it is that we ought to pray for. Lord, so that our prayers align with your will, uh, and that our prayers are not uh, hindered by unbelief, uh, by doubting, Lord, by uh, asking and requesting for things out of selfish ambition and selfish motives. Uh, so Lord, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, of the importance of prayer, and Lord, how important it is that not only we should pray, but that we ought to pray for the right things. Lord, that you would uh, cause our hearts to be fixed upon your glory, Lord, upon your kingdom, Lord, upon those things that are needful primarily for our spiritual well-being, but Lord, also uh, for our physical well-being as well. Uh, so Lord, may we learn to trust in you in all things, Lord, to rely upon you, and may we show our reliance, Lord, on you through uh, the prayers that we offer Lord, for your blessing to be upon us. So, Lord, we ask for you to teach us tonight, Lord, that your spirit would be with us, that he would instruct and guide us into all truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we remember in chapter 6, he's been dealing with uh, warnings about practicing your righteousness before men to be seen by others, right? He's called us in uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 22, that if our righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So part of being a Christian, right, part of the Christian life is living a godly life, that we have to live 
a righteous life. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does a man uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but he puts it on a stand so that it can give light to all in the house. And so we also are to live in such a way that we bring glory to God and that men might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So we are called to live a righteous life and that righteousness will be both private and public. It'll be in our personal life when no one else is around. It will be in our homes when we're with our family. It will be in the church and it'll be in society wherever we find ourselves. We're to live a consistent, godly, practically righteous life before men. This is what we're called to do. But here he's warning us not that our righteousness will be hidden, but that we don't uh, desire these things or that we don't live a godly life or a pretentious life so that we receive praise from men. Because there are many people who will pursue spiritual things in a sense, in an outward sense, in order to receive glory and honor from men. And this is a common uh, temptation. This is a common plague that men desire glory and honor. They want recognition. And if they find a platform in the church to promote themselves, then they'll do those things. If they can use the Bible to promote themselves, then they'll use the Bible to promote themselves. The church, the Christian life, whatever it is that a man can do to put himself in front and center in order to receive praise, then this is what people are going to do. And in the Bible, the clearest example of this are the scribes and Pharisees. This is the kind of life that they were living. They were doing these things. They were very religious people. They talked about spiritual things in a sense, but all of it was for the wrong reasons, right? All for their own pride and vanity, their own selfish ambition. And so he's warning his disciples and us, do not do these things. Don't practice your righteousness to be seen by others, but rather to be humble, to live a quiet Christian life, a simple, quiet Christian life, whether in private, in public, be consistent in the way that you live and don't do it to be seen by men, but rather do it to be seen by God, that God may see it and then God will reward you on the day of judgment. So he dealt with things like giving to the poor, with prayer, right? Don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. They like to stand on the street corners. They like to stand in the synagogues. They like to do it in those places to be seen by others. And he says, you're not supposed to do those things, but rather offer your prayers in secret, right? In secret, in your closet, in your inner room, and your father will see in secret and will reward you. And then also in verse seven, he dealt with the Gentiles. Don't pray like Gentiles who heap up meaningless phrases, who say these types of meaningless words, repetitious words over and over and over again. And they think that by their many words, God is going to hear them. So we're not supposed to be like them in our prayers. Also, we should point out, I didn't mention this last week, but it was brought to my attention. We shouldn't be like them in our singing either. Because if you ever listen to modern uh, praise songs that are, are sung, uh, like by Hellsong or... Bethel, uh, what's some other groups, you know, like that. What do they do over and over and over and over again? It's the same words, the same phrases repeated over and over and over again, right? And they just say the same thing ad nauseum, right? Thinking that just repeating it is good enough. Well, it's not good enough. It stinks, actually. And there's no excuse for it because we have an entire book of the Bible. Did you know that? Yeah. The book of Psalms or 
Some people refer to it as the book of Psalms. But it is the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is a song book written by the Holy Spirit through the prophets to teach us how we ought to pray and how we ought to sing. And the Psalms are not giving meaningless repetition. There are times when there is repetition for a reason, but the majority of the time it's not doing that at all. It's actually, it's filled with content and it's focused on the glory of God, on the glory of God and them crying out to God for his mercy in their time of need. So we shouldn't be like them, like Gentiles who do these types of things. So he says, don't do like they do, but instead know that your father knows what you need before you ask him. When we pray, we're not bringing things to God's attention that he doesn't already know. He already knows all these things, right? And it's not for his benefit, it's for our benefit. So it needs to be clear, concise, simple, and biblical. So then in verse 9, which is where we'll pick up today, Jesus is going to instruct us, then this is what we need to do. When you pray, don't be like the Gentiles, but you need to be like this. These are the things that you need to be praying for. Right? And in the Lord's Prayer, he's not giving us a rote prayer that we just repeat this prayer every time that we pray and then that's the end of the day. He's teaching us what it is that we ought to pray for, the things that should be on the forefront of our mind in terms of our prayers to God. And, and he's telling us these are the things that we ought to be praying for. So one thing to point out, uh, in verses 5 through 8, we're taught what not to do in our prayers, right? This is what you don't do in your prayers. Don't be like the hypocrites in verses five and six, and don't be like the Gentiles in verses seven and eight. Then in verses nine to 13, he's teaching us this is what you ought to pray like. So notice he's teaching both uh, what you shouldn't do and what you should do. He's teaching both positively and negatively. He's teaching by way of contrast. And we talk about this often. The Bible teaches by way of contrast. Black and white, good and evil, right? Righteousness and wickedness. Pray like this, don't pray like this. He's dealing with both of these things. And this goes back to something we talked about on Sunday afternoon in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Whenever the apostle is teaching about the minister and his responsibility in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 it says there that he must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it right he exhorts in sound doctrine he teaches what is good and right and then he also refutes those who contradict it he has to do both of those things well, isn't that what Jesus is doing here? He's refuted what contradicts sound doctrine whenever he says, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't do this. And then he's going to teach what accords with sound doctrine in verses 9 through 13. Pray like this. This is the way that you ought to pray. So he does both of these things. And again, whenever people say, you know, we just need to be positive, not negative, be gracious, be loving, be like Jesus. Well, that's not the way Jesus taught. What, what they're saying by be positive and loving is actually contrary to what Jesus taught. Jesus addressed what he saw that was wrong, false, hypocritical, right, evil, and he addressed it publicly, 
right? And then he taught what was good and right. And that's what we need to do as well. And those people who will criticize us or anyone else for teaching by way of contrast, they would have cr criticized Jesus as well. They would have criticized him and they would have hated the way that he taught. So here he's teaching then what accords with sound doctrine. So he's refuted the contradiction, false prayers, and now he's going to teach this is what a sound prayer looks like. This is what is in accordance with sound doctrine. So let's pick up there in verse 9. First, he says, pray then in this way, right? Pray in this way. Now notice here first that prayer is not optional. He doesn't say, if you desire to pray, then this is the way that you ought to pray. Or if you have an unction to pray, then this is the way that you ought to pray. What is the expectation here of Christ? The expectation is that we will be praying, that it is the expectation of his followers, his disciples, that we are supposed to pray to God, that this will be an integral part of the Christian life, of our Christian faith, of our obedience to God. We are to offer prayers to God. This is a part of the Christian life. And so we need to pray to the Lord. This is why in most of the catechisms that came out of the time of the Reformation. There was a section on doctrine, there was a section on the Ten Commandments, and then there is a section on the Lord's Prayer. Because they believed that the sum total of the Christian life could be found in sound doctrine. We need to know what to believe. We need to have proper faith before God, and this is in the body of doctrine that is taught within the catechism. Then also that we need to live an obedient life. We need to live a righteous life. And the way that we are taught to live a righteous life is found in an exposition of the Ten Commandments of God. And then the third component of the Christian life is prayer. And how are we to pray? How are we going to be taught how to pray consistently with the will of God? An exposition of the, of the Lord's Prayer. So this is what is typically included in those ancient Reformed catechisms, the body of doctrine, then the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer, right? Because they saw that that was the sum total of the Christian life. And this is what he's teaching here. Pray in this way. So it's not an option. It's not a preference. It's not something you can do if you like, but you're not obligated to do. The expectation of Christ is that we, as his people, will offer prayers to God as a part of the Christian life. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you, in Christ Jesus. So there, verse 17, pray without ceasing, that we are to be in this dis, uh, disposition of prayer all the time, right? All the time communing with God, crying out to God. Now, of course, he doesn't mean pray without ceasing in your inner closet. Otherwise, we would never be able to eat. We could never go to the bathroom. We could never see our family. We could never go to work. Right? Obviously, he doesn't mean it. we can never sleep. There are times when, of course, we're not praying in the sense of consciously praying to God or where we have other things 
that are at the forefront that we have to do. Like when we're at our job, whatever our task is, that is there and we have to give ourselves to those things. He simply means that the life of the Christian is to be a life of prayer, of ceaseless prayers to God. So this then is a very beneficial passage because if we are to pray without ceasing, then it needs to be that our prayers are consistent with the will of God. And how are we going to pray consistent with the will of God if the Lord himself does not instruct us and teach us in what we need to do? Right? If, if at any point of the Christian life, we are left to our own devices, if we're left to ourselves to just figure it out on our own, we're going to be miserable failures. And that's why the Bible gives to us such clear, concise instructions so that there's nothing left to doubt. That there's nothing left to our imagination for us to figure it out because we need clear instruction. And that's why he's giving this to us here. So pray in this way. Now, how are we to pray? First, notice, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. First notice that he says, our father, not my father, not my father, right? And when we are praying to God, we are to understand that there is a distinction between God as our father and God as the father of Christ or of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We are not the incarnate son of God. We are not divine beings. We will never become divine beings, such as is taught in the Mormon church or other false religions. We are human beings, right? We are not divine. We do not have a divine nature. So there is a distinction, I think, being made here, right, between God as our Father, which is true for all saints. Anyone who is a believer has God as his Father in an equal portion. He's not more of a father to one person and less of a father to another. One man is not more of a son and another one is less of a son, right? If we are believers, if we've been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have God as our father in equal portion. Now, it is true that one man may have greater faith. It is true that one man may be more godly or he may be more mature in the Christian faith, but that does not mean that he has a greater, um, it doesn't mean that he has a greater uh, desire, a greater appeal to the fatherhood of God, right? All of us have God as our father. And this, again, in contrast to Jesus, who, when he would talk about God, would speak of him as my father, right? My father in distinction to these things. So let's look at a couple passages in the book of John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there, God gave his only begotten son. So in that way, Jesus is the only begotten son who is from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
that's not true of us. We are not the only begotten Son in the same sense, in the sense that Jesus is the only begotten Son, because here, when it's talking about Jesus as the Son of God, is it referring to His humanity or His divinity? Here, it's His divinity. He is the divine Son, the divine Son in human flesh, God incarnate, and that is unique to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 18. Well, actually, let's read verse 17 and 18. It says, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there, even the unbelievers, his opponents, even they understand, they don't believe it, but they know what Jesus is saying, what he's implying whenever he's calling God my father, that he's making himself equal with God. He's saying that he has the same divine nature, and when he's saying my father is working, until now, and I myself am working, that he's saying that he is equal with the Father in terms of his divinity, his divine nature, right? And again, that's not true of us, right? We can't say that in the way that Jesus said it. We can say that God is our Father and that our God is working, that our Father is working in the world, but we cannot say in the same way that Jesus said that he is my Father and just as he's working, I'm working, and that I am one with the Father that I have the same divine nature as God the Father. Then also chapter 20, John chapter 20. Twenty verse 17. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Right? My Father and your Father. Right? So there, again, there is a distinction between God as our Father and God as the Father of Christ. Right? Because He was the Son of God. So, my Father means that Jesus had the same divine nature as God. When we say God is our Father... We mean that through faith in Christ, through redemption, we have been adopted into the family of God. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, through our union with Christ, and we are brought into the family of God through faith in Christ. That's what we mean when we say our Father, that we understand that we're not little gods, we're not uh, divine, but rather we have been adopted into the family of God, into the family of God through Jesus Christ, and he has brought us near to God. Also, that he says our Father shows that we are a part of the family of God, that we are a part of a family or of a church, of the body of Christ. So our prayers are not to be directed for our own self-interest, but rather are to be directed 
for not only our good, but for the good of the church, right? For the good of all believers. And whatever is beneficial to the body, to the church, is what we should desire that God would do in our own life. So we are not to pray merely for our own self-interest, merely for what is best for us, but we are to be directed in our prayers, right, through this inscription of our Father for the good of the body of Christ. So we do not have this unique Christian experience, right, that is separate from anyone else. That I know something and I have a relationship with God that no one else has. That God speaks to me in ways that he doesn't speak to anyone else. That God does things for me that he doesn't do for anyone else. That's not the way that we're to, to think of the Christian life. As if we're individualistic, right? And it's just about me and God and me doing whatever I want to do with God. And I don't need to be a part of the church. I don't even need to go to church. I'll have my own church. It'll just be me and God. And we'll have church together out uh, in the woods and I can go hunting on Sunday or we'll have our church together. I've had someone tell me that before uh, Or uh, me and God will have our meeting at the ball field on Sunday, right? We can meet there people will say that as well But no, this isn't the way that we should think About the Christian life or when we're praying to God which when we're praying to God We're asking God to act on our behalf right to benefit us to bless us right to help us in our time of need but we're not to only be thinking about ourselves, but we're to be thinking about what is best for the body of Christ. And if what is best for the body is something that I might not desire, like suffering or hardship, then bring it, then that's what, we, what needs to happen because it is what is good for the rest of the body of Christ. So whether we're praying in private or whether we're praying in public, our prayers to God are to be directed not merely for our own good, but for the good of the body of Christ, right? For the body of Christ. And that is there, I think, in that inscription of our Father, right? That he calls him, calls us to pray, not to my Father, but to our Father, our Father collectively, because we all are part of the body and we all have a common interest in the Father, in the fatherhood of God and that we have been adopted into his family. Also, notice he is our father, right? He calls us when we are addressing God to address him as father, that he is our father. Now, why is this the case? Well, first, I think to encourage us, to encourage us to offer prayers to him. There are many titles that we could give to God. Yeah. He is our creator. He is our king. He is the sovereign one. He is the judge who will judge all men. And all of these things are true. And we could address God in all of these ways. So why does Jesus single out this title for God when we're offering prayers and not these other things? And I think it's to incite us to pray. Because when we're calling to God as a father, right? When we're thinking of him in those terms, doesn't that encourage us to draw near to God? Knowing that we're coming near to our heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, who knows what's best for us, who wants to give good gifts to us, right? He wants to give good things to us. So though there are many ways that we could address God, and in some cases it may be that uh, when we're praying we address him in those ways, but here what Jesus is teaching is commonly when we're praying to God, the address that we should give to him is that he is our Father and that we should cry out to him, and this encourages us to offer prayers to God. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. 
this is the um, connection that Jesus makes here in this passage. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Again, a passage about prayer. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So there, the comparison is our earthly fathers and our heavenly Father. Right? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we on earth, who are fathers, know how to give good gifts to our children, right? what father, unless he's completely demented, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a poisonous serpent? No father's going to do that. Or if he asks for an egg, is going to give him a scorpion, right? No one is going to do that. Maybe a plastic one, that's a practical joke. But then afterwards, you're going to give them what it is that they need, right? So we know how to give good gifts to our children. We know how to give them what they need, right, for their body, for their well-being, for their good. And in comparison to God, we are evil people. If we, who are evil people, know how to give good gifts to our children, and even unbelievers who are fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. If unbelievers know how to do that, then how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to His children? And here, what is the good gift? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. After the day of Pentecost? No, this is before the day of Pentecost, right? And what's he already expecting his disciples to ask for? Right. Praying to God for the Holy Spirit. Before the day of Pentecost, right? He's teaching them to pray for these things. So this then is an encouragement to pray. That God is our Father and we have fathers on earth. We know that our fathers, if we go to them with a legitimate need, that they, because of their love for us, are going to meet our need. So when we're coming to God as our Heavenly Father and we have legitimate needs that, are, uh, that we are truly in need of, then our Father in Heaven knows how to give good gifts to His children and He will meet our needs. And the greatest need is the Holy Spirit. Okay. Right? For how are we going to live a godly life without the Holy Spirit? How are we going to be faithful to God? How will we overcome sin? How will we understand the Bible? How will we grow in our faith? How will we do anything in the Christian life without the Holy Spirit? It's impossible. It's impossible. So God will give us what we need. Secondly, when we think of God as our Father, it also ought to be a reminder to us of where we've come from, of where we come from, because this isn't true by nature. By nature, we are not children of God, but who is our father by nature? Who is our spiritual father according to our corrupt, sinful nature? John chapter 8. John chapter 8.
John chapter 8. In verse 44, it says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So there, these unbelievers, right, who don't hear the words of God, right? So this is not just true of his immediate, uh, this immediate controversy and his immediate enemies that are there, but, but, but anyone who doesn't hear the words of God, right. which is all unbelievers. Well, who is the father spiritually of all unbelievers, because if they're not believing the word of God, then what are they believing? The they're believing lies. lies, lies from the devil. Their father is the devil, right? Their father is the devil. So by nature, we do not have God as our father, nope. right? By nature, we have the devil as our spiritual father. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So there, that is what we are by nature. We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So we weren't sons of God. We weren't obedient sons. We were disobedient. Disobedient sons of the devil. This is what we are by our nature. So what happened? Because now, according to this passage, we're calling God our Father. And when he says our Father, we're not praying to the devil. Right. We're praying to our Father who is in heaven, which is the devil isn't in heaven. It's God who's there. It is a holy God who is there. We are calling upon God as our Father. Well, what happened? That's Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what happened was God. God happened. The grace of God. The grace of God came and changed us. Changed us from being dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ. And now through Christ... 
through the grace of God that comes to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Now, instead of being sons of the devil, we've been transformed, we've been transported from the kingdom of darkness, and now we are in the kingdom of light. We were sons of the devil, now we're sons of God. And this happens by new birth. A new birth takes place that changes us and brings us out of one kingdom, out of sonship to the devil, and brings us into the kingdom of God and makes us a part of his family and gives us a standing within the household of faith, and the standing is that of a son. Not as a slave, but we are sons of God in this way, and this all by the miracle of God, the miracle of salvation, where God transforms us, converts us by his power. Okay, next. Father. These are all subpoints dealing with calling God our Father. The next, why is it important for us to address him as Father? The title Father also invokes reverence. Reverence for God. We're not calling God our buddy. We're not calling him our friend. He's not our bestie. He's not our forever friend. He's not our homeboy. Whatever it is that people want to call God, he's not any of those things. He is our Father. And yes, Father is an endearing title, but it also is a title of reverence, of fear, that we give proper reverence to God. And it is a reminder that we are sons and he is the Father. And it is a faithful son who seeks to honor his Father, right? Not to dishonor him, not to disobey him, but to honor his Father. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi 1, 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? A son honors his father. right? An obedient son, a faithful son honors his father. Well, if God is our father, then shouldn't we honor him? Of course we should. We should honor him in our life, and we should honor him in our prayers. Next, that God is our father is a reminder that we need to submit our prayers to his will, to his will. Because when we're praying, we are seeking to bring something about, to bring something about in our life, in this world, whatever it is, that is what we are desiring to do. Well, we need to remember that God is our Father, and we, in, in this relationship, who has the higher rank? Whose will must be supreme in regards to our prayers, right? Not our will, but His will, right? His will must be supreme. He is our Father. We are His Son. His will must be greater than our will. And what kind of a father is God? Is he a foolish father? Is he a bumbling buffoon of a father who doesn't know what he's doing? No, he is the only wise God. He is a wise father who knows what is best, who knows what is good. He and he alone knows what we need and knows what is needed in the church, in this world, in all things. Romans chapter 16 Romans chapter 16 and verse 27. 
Romans 16, verse 27. It says, To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. To the only wise God. He's the only one. The only one who has wisdom is God. All wisdom comes from God. Whatever wisdom we have originated with him. So he's the only one that has wisdom. And then the only way we can become wise is through his wisdom, by gaining it from him. But it all originates with God. Well, if he is a wise father, then don't we want our prayers to be submissive to his will? Do we know better for our own life than what God knows? Do we know better for our own family, for our own children than God knows? Are we more wise than he is? Do we love ourselves more than God loves us? Do we love our children more than God loves our children? No, none of these things are true. So what should we do then? We should submit ourselves to the will of God. Also, uh, while we're in Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So there, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's who we're praying to. The God who has depth that is unsearchable. Unsearchable depth to his wisdom and knowledge. So we, we want his will because his will is much greater than our will. He has much more wisdom than any of us possess, any of us collectively possess. So whatever God desires is what is best. And we should submit our will to his will. This would be like the Apostle Paul. When he was praying three times for God to relieve him, to deliver him, from the thorn in his flesh. The messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. But what did God say? God said no. He did not deliver him, but he gave him the grace to endure it, to put up with it. And was it for his good? Yes. Yes, to keep him humble. Is it good to be humble? No doubt. Absolutely. We don't want to be proud. And this was the means God used to keep him humble. Though he prayed for God to deliver him from that, he ultimately submitted his will to the will of his father, right? To the will of his father, though initially it was contrary to what he desired, right? He desired to be set free from it, but he ultimately submitted himself to the will of God, knowing that God's will is better, right? God is too wise to ever make any mistakes. He cannot make any mistakes. So whatever happens to us, we know it comes to us from the all-wise God. Also, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." In all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak 
and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So there, again, contrasting our earthly fathers with our heavenly father, right? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, right? Not our whole life, right? But while we're in their household for a very short amount of our life and especially of our eternity. And they did so as best they could, as what seemed best to them. They inflict discipline and they do it to the best of their ability according to what they think is best and what they think is right, right? But none of them are able to do it perfectly. But we subjected ourselves to their discipline because they are our father and we knew that it was for our good. Well, then how much more God, right? Who does not discipline us as seems best to him, right? In the sense that there is any level of doubt of whether or not what he's doing is for our good or not, if this is the best path to take. No, God doesn't make any mistakes. So whatever he does, he does it well. He does it perfectly. And that's why we should, should, should subject our prayers and our life to the will of God, to the will of God. Right, as Jesus did when he prayed that God would deliver him, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. Right, your will be done. That's what we should say in all of our prayers because we are praying to our Heavenly Father. Okay, also, that God is our Father is a reminder to us that we should be about His business. Right, prayer is not a mechanism to get what I want. Right, God is not a genie in the bottle that I rub through my prayers and then God is obligated now to give me what I want. Name it and claim it. We all know about the name it and claim it uh, people, the prosperity people, right? Name it and claim it means uh, health, wealth, prosperity. These are the things that they want in this life. And if you go and you have enough faith, then God's going to give you those things. That's what they say. And, and they're the example, right? Because they're very wealthy. And you know they never get sick? Actually, they do get sick. And what happens to all those people? They all die one day. Well, where's their faith at, right? They have no faith. Can't they just live forever? No, they all die. So they're all frauds and phonies. But we shouldn't be like that, right? We should be about our Father's business. And when we pray, His, his business should be at the forefront of our mind, not, not our own, right? He is the head, right? We are the body, and He ought to have the supremacy, and He should be at the forefront, just as it was, in the days of, for example, Jacob with his sons, well, he expected his sons to work and to do those things that were beneficial to his will, to what Jacob set out for them. And so it is as well with God as our father. We should be tending to his work and to his business. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And verse 49, Luke 2, 49 says, And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Right? Or some translations would say that I had to be about my father's business. Right? That I needed to be in the place where my father's business or my father's house where those things are being discussed, 
they're being talked about, that this is what is at the forefront. Right? So why are you shocked that you find me here in the temple? Of course I have to be here because I am about the work of my Father. And this is how we should be as well. We should have God's work at the forefront of our mind. And then also, while we're in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. says, And the slave, who knew his master's will, and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it, and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So there, and then also look at verse 43. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So whether we're talking about a slave to a master or whether we're talking about a son to a father, in both cases, whether it's the slave or the son, what does the slave or son need to be doing? The will of the Lord, right? The will of the master of the house, right? Whether that be God as our master or God as our father, it's the same. We need to be about his will. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Also, he says, Our Father who is in heaven. Right, who is in heaven. So why are we to address him as our Father who is in heaven? Well, in heaven, first, to keep us from being consumed with what is earthly, physical, and temporal. Is this not a preoccupation with many, many people? Is this not a preoccupation with many of us? We live in this present world, right? We are tempted to live by what we see and not to live by faith. To be consumed with this present temporal physical world. And you also will often see this manifested in people's prayers. Because typically, what are they always praying for? It, it all has to do with their health, with uh, their jobs, with this, with that. With things that are related to this world. Again, not that there's anything wrong with praying for these things. But if that's all we're praying about, then we're not thinking rightly. We're not having our prayers geared in the right way. We are to be heavenly minded, right? Heavenly minded first. And then we also need those things that are useful for our body. And there is a place to pray for those things. Jesus tells us to pray for those things, even in the Lord's Prayer, right? That we are to pray for our daily bread. The bread that we need every day for our physical life, for our physical bodies. So there is a place for us to pray for the things that are needful for this life. But is that to be all that we pray for? Is that to be at the forefront of all of our prayers? No. We have to remember that God is in heaven, right? God is in heaven, right? And that there is a life to come. There is a day of judgment, right? There is an eternity with God or without God, and that's what should be on the forefront of our mind. Christ is not on earth right now in his physical, a physical, uh, visible bodily form. Where is Christ seated now? He's at the right hand of God the Father who is in heaven. So Christ is in heaven, so our mind shouldn't be on this present world, but it should be in heaven with Christ. That's where our focus should be, and that's what the prayer is teaching us, 
when we say our Father who is in heaven, that our mind, our prayers need to be geared not merely toward that which is earthly, physical, and temporal, but ultimately, primarily, toward that which is heavenly, that which is spiritual, and that which is eternal. That Those are the things that are the issues of life. Right. Those are the most important issues of life. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? The body is more than food, right? Or, or uh, yeah, the life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. There are things more important than just your physical needs. And those are the spiritual needs that we have. Matthew chapter six. Matthew six, verse 25 says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Right? Well, how are we going to be reminded of those things? By praying to our Father who's in heaven. Right? That we are to be heavenly minded in the way that we pray. Even when we're praying for those things needful for the body, needful for this life, it's with a heavenly focus so that we can do the will of God, so that we can love our neighbor, so that we can love our family, so that we can preach the gospel and do those things that are pleasing to God. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Right? Christ is there at the right hand of God. That's where our head is, our master, our Lord, our heavenly Father. He's there. So set our mind on those things, not on things that are on the earth. That should be at the forefront of our mind. Have you ever heard that statement? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Where is that ever? Well, one, if anyone ever says that, could you ask them, say, could you give me a Bible verse to, to support that statement? <laughs> because you can, but you actually find verses that do what? Contradict it. Isn't that what we just read, Colossians 3? Isn't the Lord's Prayer contradicting it? No, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. 
will be more beneficial to people on the earth when we are heavenly minded, right? In the right way, in the proper way, right? Not uh, floating around dealing with uh, things that are complete and utter nonsense, but when we're truly heavenly minded and seeking to live a godly life, then we will be much good to people here on the earth. Okay, so here then to keep us from being consumed with this present world. And then next, in heaven, is a reminder too that if God is in heaven, he has the power to accomplish his will upon the earth. Heaven is greater than earth, correct? In relationship to these two entities, earth and heaven, which is greater, which is higher, which is above, which is below? Well, heaven is higher and the earth is lower. And does God's will get done in heaven? According to the Lord's Prayer, it gets done perfectly, right? God's will is done perfectly in heaven. Well, if God has the power to accomplish his will in heaven, and that's where he's at, then what can he do on earth? Whatever he wants, right? God can do whatever he pleases. So we are reminded here that God does not lack the power to do his will in heaven and to do his will on earth. And that should be a comfort to us when we pray to God. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Right? The earth is his footstool. Can God do his will on earth? Do people, do wicked people have the ability to thwart the will of God? Does the devil outsmart, outtrick, outmaneuver God at every turn? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They can't do anything apart from God. So God has the power to do whatever he pleases in heaven and to do whatever he pleases on the earth. And that's important for us because many times when we're praying to God, like, for example, if you read the book of Psalms, especially the early Psalms, like through the first 50, uh, or 60, <laughs> so not that early, I guess, many of those Psalms are dealing with persecution, the suffering of the children of God. Well, when we rem- are reminded that God is in heaven, one, we know that our suffering is not something that escapes his eye. It's not that God is unaware of these things. We also know that God has the power to deliver us any, in a second if he wants to, right? So, and we know that he has the ability to give us the grace to endure these things. So it shouldn't cause us to have a crisis of faith, to wonder where is God, right? Why does God not love us? Why is God not acting? But rather should encourage us to continue praying to God, knowing that in due time, God will lift us up, right? He will exalt those who are humble and he is going to crush and humiliate those who are proud, right? Isaiah chapter 41, right? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Right. Psalm 115, 
verse 3. But also, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll pick up in verse 21. Isaiah 40, 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So there, again, he's dealing here with this temptation to think that the rulers of the earth, the powerful ones on earth, especially those who are persecuting the church, which is typically the case, that they are acting independently outside of the will of God, the power of God, that they're thwarting God in his will. And he's telling them this isn't the case at all. He sits above the earth. He is in heaven. They are of the earth. God could squash them like a bug at any second. And he will do that to them in due time. And your way is not hidden from the Lord. He says, why are you saying these things? Why do you believe that this is the case, that your way is hidden from God and that God's not going to give you justice? No, he's going to give you justice in due time. But you have to be patient. You have to persevere. And nothing is outside of his control and nothing escapes his eye or his notice. He sees it all and in due time, God will rectify it. And until then, what do we do? We pray. We pray. We cry out to God. We ask for help in our time of need. And we know in due time, God will hear us and he will answer us. So here, in this opening phrase, our Father, right, who is in heaven, we have a reminder both of the eminence of God and the transcendence of God. The eminence in that God is near to all who call upon him. We call him our Father, but not in a flippant way. We're also reminded that our Father is transcendent. He transcends this earth. He transcends all things. He's in heaven. So we don't approach him lightly. Yes, he is our father. So we go boldly before him. We go before him with confidence, but we don't go in a light, flippant, in a, in a way that lacks fear and reverence right. because he's also in heaven. And he's in heaven and we are on earth. 
So according to Ecclesiastes, our word should be what? Few. Our word should be few, <laughs> right? The eminence of God, the transcendence of God. We need both of those things in our mind when we're offering our prayers to God. Okay, so we'll go ahead and stop there tonight. And then we'll pick up next week with the actual petitions, right? The, the five petitions that he lays out that are to guard and to guide the way that we offer prayers to God, okay? All right, so we'll stop there. And we got some time for questions.